Hey, this is Andrew Brill back today here with Lee Epstein, who is a uh, pastor directional leader at uh, New Heights Church here in Fayetteville. Been doing this for you past 10 years now, right, Lee? 11. 11 years. Well, so I'm in my 11th year. Congratulations. Here at New Heights, I know you were pastoring before that yes. elsewhere. So, um, uh, Lee is one of my former pastors, a guy I really respect. And so, honestly, it's just a treat to get to hang out with you, Lee, for 30 minutes and talk about the Bible. I would do that whether we were recorded or not. So I appreciate that. So um, you taught for us on Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, five. We, we throw five books. You're, you're the record so far. And you gave me 10 minutes to That's do right. that. <laughs> Actually, an hour and 45. That's right. So you said, just a second ago, you said this is maybe your favorite section of the Old Testament. Why is that? I think a lot of people maybe haven't even spent much time in this at all. They'd say, oh, it's not the Psalms. It's not Genesis. And you're saying, this is one of my favorites. So why do you, why do you love this so much? I enjoy it because the children of Israel are, they're coming out of the Pentateuch. They're coming out of the first five books of the Bible. So we get Genesis, Exodus, um, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, they're, they're just about ready to cross over into the promised land, the land that God promised them. And uh, we finally get to see it happen. We finally get to see them make a decision to trust and obey God. And so I, I love this because for just a, just a little bit, just a, you get a brief insight into what obedience looks like. It doesn't last long, but in the book of Joshua, um, they finally cross over and they have this opportunity to do right. And so we get to see that just briefly. And then, of course, they, they lapse into to sin and disobedience and um, it goes all bad from there. But... Uh, even as it's going bad from there, we continue to see Jesus in the story, what we call the scarlet thread. Okay, I've seen that th- that phrase before, scarlet thread, hinted that. I mean, we'll pick this up as we go through the books, but just tell what do you, what do you mean by that when you say scarlet thread? Often when I when I ask students or my congregation, if I'm preaching to them, um, to look at the Old Testament, uh, ask where Jesus is at in the story. Ask where you're at in the story. Make application to yourself, but also when you're in the Old Testament, ask yourself, where is Jesus in the story? And we see this in Genesis. We see the beginning of the pro-evangelium, the first gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And then you, you begin to see this thread, scarlet thread, red thread, the blood of Jesus um, weave itself throughout all 66 books of the Bible. But it starts in Genesis, and we really see this um, in these five books that I was able to teach in the book of Ruth, and when it talks about a, a kinsman redeemer, that Boaz would redeem Ruth's family, just like Jesus redeemed our family. He would purchase, take care of, provide for. Um, that was the the law of the kinsman redeemer. And we see Jesus doing the same thing for us. The, the kinsman redeemer piece, I mean, there's just that language there of, hey, come under my wings and, you know, you know, Ruth is one who is an outsider who is brought in as a Moabitess. And so just, I mean, that's one that we've talked about at Light Bears a lot just in that in that way. So, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back up to Joshua. Yeah, sorry. Okay, no, you're good. We, in Deuteronomy, Moses dies. Namesake of Joshua is obviously Joshua, Moses's aide. Mm-hmm. But kind of walk us through, you know, what's the, what's the precipice of that Israelites find themselves at as Moses dies, how does Joshua step into that leadership? Kind of what's that transition personally and nationally as they enter into the land? Maybe the first few chapters of Joshua with them. Yeah, going going back to Deuteronomy, going back to the time where the children 
um, wander in, in, in the wilderness, um, they have this really important moment in Kadesh Barnea where they enter in to spy the land. And, and God sends in the 12 spies, one from each tribe. Uh, you have the 10, and then you have Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb come back and they say, we can do this. This is a land filled with milk and honey and resources. And oh yeah, there's some giants, but we can overcome that. And then the 10 say the same thing. This is a land filled with milk and honey, um, but they're giants and we can't overcome that. And so Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, is a picture of, will you trust God? And they don't. And so God punishes them and they wander for 40 years. Joshua picks up that theme, the book of Joshua. And as the mantle is passed from Moses to Joshua, God again says through through numerous um, opportunities, I'm going to give you a chance to trust me. Will you? And so that's that to me is the theme of Joshua. Will you trust me? And so Moses ha- hands the baton. He dies up on Mount Nebo and um, hands that baton on to Joshua. And the first the first um, test that they have, so to speak, is crossing uh, the Jordan. And the Jordan uh, is a metaphor for the children of Israel. It's it's it feels like protection for all those in the Promised Land, the, that people group that doesn't want them to come in. But for the children of Israel, it's a metaphor. Will you trust me? And so God has them cross the the Jordan um, during. Literally, it says in 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 uh, Joshua chapter three and verse fifteen, it says, "I'm going to have I want you to cross, but you're going to cross during um, oh, it's what would be the season." The, like the rainy season? The, like the rainy yeah, season, yeah. yeah. And so usually there's about 60 different places you can cross the Jordan and it's easy to get across. But during the rainy season, it's almost impossible to cross. And so it's it's 150 feet wide. It's 15 to 20 feet deep. And God says, I want you to take the Ark of the Covenant and I want the priest to go first. And I want you to walk into this fast-moving river that will sweep you all away. Yeah. We um, picture this little stream sometimes. You yeah, know? no, no, it's not yeah, a little yeah. stream. It's, you know, the writer, uh, uh, most likely, uh, probably Joshua, uh, makes a, you know, purposely puts in there, it's during rainy season. And so um, God says, will you trust me to walk into that that river? And if you do, I'll cause it literally to stop. It's kind of Red Sea part two. Um, will you trust me to do this? And uh, they do. They trust him. And the water stops further down the river up, upstream and they cross over. And so we begin to see all these little trust opportunities with the children of Israel time and time again. Will you trust me uh, to, to take down the walls of Jericho? Will you march around it, this silly band of people literally playing trumpets and horns and chauffeurs and shouting uh, I'm not going to ask you to build a rampart. I'm not going to ask you to, to scale the wall or try and knock it over. I'm just going to ask you to trust me that I can take the wall down. And they do. And so time and time again, we see in the book of Joshua, the children of Israel trust God and he He rewards them. We even get to the end of Joshua. And I think often we forget this because what follows is not so positive. But we get to the end of Joshua and they're still struggling with idol worship. And Joshua has that that very famous speech, as for me and my household, we will serve God. It's on surely it's on a plate at somebody's oh, house yeah. somewhere. Right oh yeah. Oh yeah. Lifeway has made millions <laughs> with that on pillows and picture frames and and uh 
As for me and my house, we're going to trust God. We're going to serve him. And he says, uh, you do this. Will you do the same? And they said, we will. He says, no, you won't. So we will. No, you won't. He said, literally says, take your idols out of your back pockets and throw them away. And what's amazing is they do. They do. And then they have what the scriptures call a generation. I don't know how many years. Would that be 40 years, 30? I don't know, but it's, it's, I'm sure it's decades. A generation of believers live out the ethos of God, of Jehovah. Um, but then it goes all bad in the book of Judges. But you have that, you have that moment. That kind of that's what you're hinting at of like this moment where it goes well. I mean, one of the things you said is you talk about the importance of telling the next generation about the deeds of the Lord. I mean, talk about that for a little bit. I mean, I think that's what you're going at. Is this yeah. the generation that knew Joshua and had seen the wonders of the Lord? You know, how do you get that to the next generation? Obviously, there's application for that's us good. today as well. But no, and that's and and that's the transition in into Judges because it it, it ends on a feel good moment. Joshua 24, we go, oh my word, they're going to do it. And they do for 40 years. And then you get to judges and all of a sudden it says, oh, by the way, they did, that it was right in their own eyes and they forsook everything that God had taught them uh, and followed after uh, pagan idols. And you go, what happened? And you alluded to it. We see a couple of things that happened that are significant. Um, number one, um, they don't tell the stories, as you said. For whatever reason, um, this generation that decided to listen to Joshua and obey Jehovah, they don't recount all the good things that God had done. For whatever reason, uh, story story time in their households is is not predicated upon how amazing God is, and that's one of the things the writer says they 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 did not tell their children all the good things that God had done. But the second thing that they had done, um, when, when we often miss this, is they practiced partial obedience. God told each one of those those tribes, go in and root everyone out from the land. Take them out. And you see time and time again in the first couple chapters of Judges, it says that they tried and they went, this is too hard, and they stopped. It, it reminds us of later on, which I, I won't talk a lot about, but of King Saul. And he says, go in and destroy all the Amalekites, destroy all the animals. And King Saul went, well, man, there's some good stuff here. How about I do a partial destruction? And then, of course, the famous words of of Samuel, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice. Because he said, I'm sacrificing some of the things that we we kept. And uh, it's no different with the children of Israel. They get in the land, they get comfortable, and they go, man, I know you told me to do this, God. But this is really difficult. So there's three things that are going on. One, they didn't tell the stories. Two, there's partial obedience. And, and three, a result of the partial obedience was they let a wicked culture hang around. Mm-hmm. And literally, the writer of Judges says um, they forsook God and ran after the Baals mm-hmm. that were in the land. They, think, they shouldn't have been in the land, yeah. but they were in the land. And I think we... You know, I mean, we read that stuff and we say, man, you, you should have known better. And they should have. And yet it is over the span of a few hundred years. And so, I mean, I can see how, I mean, in my own life, in the culture's life, like those slips are gradual sometimes. They're not always one dramatic moment. There's gradual slips over time if you, as an individual or a culture, get into these habits of not sharing the stories and those kind of things. So, um, Yeah, I mean, it re- reminds us of Deuteronomy 6, right? Yeah. 
Um, when do you talk about Jehovah? And it, we'll, we'll make a New Testament. When do you talk about Jesus? When you get up, mm-hmm. when you go to the table, when you go for a walk, and when you go to bed. The, the ethos of Jesus needs to drip from, from everything that you do. So what you put in front of your children on a screen, what you allow or not allow, um, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, which is our most precious commodity. That's the stuff. Jesus didn't say to flee the world. He said, live in the world. Just don't be of the world. And so obviously the children of Israel um, had, had trouble understanding that. Right. And so then they get into what, I mean, what you and lots of people have called the sin cycle. Mm-hmm. Walk us through what that, what that sin cycle is. What, what you see is this cycle of, and this is the goodness of God, is God gives them rest out of, out of obedience and, and, and following after Jehovah. He says, I'm going to give you rest. Part of that was the land. Part of that is just the shalom, the peace of God. And they would have rest for a period of time and then they would rebel for whatever reason or reasons, mainly because they were hanging out with people they shouldn't have been hanging out with and doing things they shouldn't have been doing. Part of it was they, they had they wanted gods that they could taste, touch, and feel. Baal worship was prevalent. It was everywhere. Uh, on every hill, there was an idol. Under trees, there were idols. It was just everywhere. Um, it was tangible. There was a, a sexual component to Baal mm-hmm. worship. That was an, a, promiscuity was part of the worship. There was promises, almost like a prosperity gospel from Baal worship. Whereas worshiping Jehovah, wow, you, you had all these commands but primarily you went to the temple three times a year and you sacrificed. Um, it was a lot more difficult. And so there would be rest. Then there would rebel. This is part of the cycle. And then God would send in um, people to straighten them up. Usually um, people from another land, uh, another people group, and they, um, they would oppress them. They would steal their wives and daughters and take their stuff. And and then um, there would be repentance. They would cry out, oh, God, we're so sorry. Why do we do this? What are we thinking? And this is what's so amazing about God. He would restore. Now, he would do it in the form of a judge. There were 12 judges, six major, six minor. The difference is just how much time the writer spent talking about them. Um, but each time he would send a judge in in this cycle. So you've got, I want to live right. I rebel. He sends in an oppressor. They repent. He sends in a judge for restoration, and you get this continuous cycle. What do you What do you make? I mean, you know, Samson's probably the best known judge just in popular culture. There's other ones, Gideon, and others mm-hmm. that are well known. I mean, when you read these stories, I mean, we a lot of times want to kind of whitewash these characters. You read Samson and Gideon; they're not necessarily these great yeah. heroes of the faith. What are we? Sp- and yet God uses them to be leaders. And yet you're also talking about partial obedience as a negative. And so, like, how do you? What are we supposed to think of these guys individually um, as we read these stories? I know you talked about Gideon some as you were teaching. Yeah, I think I think the in the entire Bible is written that way. And so, what we tend to do is is we we have revisionist history when it comes to the Bible, and we think, man, God only uses perfect people, and it's just the opposite. God uses fallen people. That's how amazing grace is. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that even while we are yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And not only died for us, he uses us. I'm never surprised 
as I look at, I'm never surprised that God uses sinful people because I look in the Bible, that's all he uses. That's all he's got to work with. That's all he's got to work with. Yeah. And so what I see with Samson is a, is a flawed man, a man full of hubris, full of pride that at the end of his life, he cries out in repent, repentance and God saves him. But God used him. What I see in Gideon is, which is comical, is a fearful man. And so he was constantly like he does the does the fleece, and everyone thinks, "Oh, fleece is a biblical thing." Fleece isn't a biblical thing. Fleece is I don't trust this you. This is God. good for college students to hear who are making major life decisions. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, a fleece is you know we can we can make the fleece work for us any which way. So I I drive up to Rogers and I'm thinking, man, I sure would like a Krispy Kreme donut. Um. But I don't need a Krispy Kreme donut, but I sure would like a Krispy Kreme donut. So if I drive by the Krispy, the Krispy Kreme um, store in Rogers and the hot now sign is flashing, that's a fleece. Now, do I need to eat a, a, a donut that floated on the river of love or the river of grease, as I like to call it? I don't need to eat that. So I get up there and guess what? The sign's not on. So I drive, I drive around it 11 times and by the 12th time, it's on. You can make it's the, a sign. It's a sign. <laughs> you can make the fleece thing work out any which way you want, and that's what Gideon tries to do. And God still uses him. Yeah, God's not saying the fleece thing is a good thing. The yeah. fleece thing is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It means you don't trust the provision that God has given you to figure out what He wants you to do. Things like uh, the Word of God, things like prayer, things like wisdom from other people, um, things like the spiritual disciplines that help us make right decisions because we're walking, we're abiding in Christ. So, yeah, I mean, back, back to the judges. I, I am amazed that God uses sinful people. But as you said, that's all he has to use. Um, what's frustrating to me is when, when people say, point at Christians and say, how can you, you do what you did? Uh, and I, and I, it's not an excuse. And what I lovingly say is, have you read the Bible? That's who God uses. Yeah, and then which is a, you didn't plan this, but a great setup to talk about David, who you also talked about. I mean, he's the man after God's own heart. And you, you look at some of his life and just, I mean, mistakes as well. And I know you pointed this out of David was a man who knew worship. He's also a man who knew sin. He knew repentance. I mean, talk about that fallen aspect of, of David and the sin in his life and, and kind of his story. How, yeah. how can he be both the man who's after God's own heart and a man who knows sin in, in, a, in a close way. Yeah, First and Second Samuel are a, a beautiful picture of um, who's going who's gonna to sit on the throne of your heart. And if, if, it's, if, it's, not, if it's not Jesus, if it's not God, then it's going to be somebody else. And if it's somebody or something else, uh, all sorts of bad stuff can happen. So with David, he starts off, as the scriptures tell us, uh, as a, the sweet shepherd of Israel. He's out in the wilderness and he's killing bears and lions and writing love songs to God. And he's in this training aspect of his life. It's just, it's just he and God. And often in the wilderness, um, it's a place where God um, equips us and grows us spiritually, sanctifies us, causes us to run after the things that we should run after. And that's where David is at. And so he goes from the wilderness now to being chosen as king. And initially, it goes it goes really well um, because he still continues to seek God, and so you get this kind of triumphal part of his life where he goes and he he obeys God and wipes out many of his enemies and 
reclaims the Ark of the Covenant and brings it back into Jerusalem, which they just made the capital. And we see this beautiful picture of David as a worshiper as he's dancing before the Lord. He gets rebuked by his wife and and it doesn't feel very kingly, but it doesn't matter because he loves God so much. He just doesn't care. And that that's a picture to us um, about what real worship should look like in every aspect of our life, not just singing and dancing, but with our monies, how we treat our, our spouse and how we approach our singleness, whatever it looks like, our life is an act of worship. Um, but it depends on who's, who's, who's on the throne of your heart. And then somewhere, we don't know exactly what happened. We, we can look in the scripture somewhere from that triumphal part that wilderness and that triumphal part of King David, um, he begins to read his own press clippings and he begins to put other things on the throne of his heart. He doesn't go off and fight in, in battles. He takes on uh, more than one wife. And if you go back to the law, the Pentateuch, it says the king shouldn't have more than one wife. He disobeys God. And uh, he becomes a polygamist. And um, he begins to... Uh, do things that he shouldn't do. And that culminates with uh, a fateful night on a rooftop. And he looks over at uh, a woman bathing, Bathsheba, who is not his wife. And the look isn't what got him. The, the look isn't whatever it gets, isn't the thing that necessarily causes us to sin. Um, what he should have done when he looked over his rooftop is he should have looked away quickly and, 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 and walked away from the scene. But instead he lingered. And he should have been fighting with his troops. It was the time for kings to go to war. And he wasn't doing that. He should have looked away, but instead he lingered. And next thing you know, uh, this man, the sweet psalmist of Israel, is literally forcing a woman to come over and sleep with him. Um, and he's committing adultery, stealing another man's wife. But then you also say he's a man who knew repentance. He knew so repentance. Yeah. Tell it. Tell it. Tell the end of the story too. Yeah. If you left it there, that would that would yeah. be uh, that would be a bummer, right? Yeah. Um, but here's what's amazing: he didn't know repentance right away. He literally thought, which this is the danger of of sin. This is the danger of letting sin become a normal part of who we are, because our hearts become so hard. And his heart was so hard as he he hatches this, he steals this woman. He sleeps, he brings this woman over to his house. He sleeps with her. He hatches this deceptive plan to have her husband killed, or at least, pardon me, to sleep, bring him back from war to sleep with her. So um, the baby that's, he's gotten her pregnant, um, the, the baby that she's going to have, the husband will go, oh, okay, I guess I got her pregnant. Um, Uriah, who is the husband, is not a Jew, but he's a believing Gentile, literally says, I can't go sleep with my wife. My troops are fighting. That would that would be inappropriate. David tries to get him drunk. He still won't sleep with his wife. And you're thinking to yourself, man, how far has David fallen? And then he sends him He sends him into battle with a note that's sealed with the king's seal. So Uriah doesn't even know what the note says, but basically it says, take this guy up to the front line where he'll most likely be killed. Hopefully he'll be killed. And he is. And then he brings Bathsheba back into his home, who's pregnant now. And um, he thinks everything's going to be great. And so God has to send a prophet, Nathan. And you can imagine uh, what Nathan was thinking as he had to go deliver this news to, to King David. Uh, not all prophets lived. Sometimes prophets would give bad news and kings would kill them. And so he had to give some bad news to David, and he does so in the form of a story. And eventually it causes David to realize that he's a wicked man, um, that he's a murderer, that he's sinned against God. And what's birthed out of that is Psalm 51. Um, 
And we see David repent. We see this man after God's own heart who had fallen into deep sin for at least, at least probably a couple of years, but we know for sure nine months um, while Bathsheba is pregnant. Um, he, uh, he recognizes his sinfulness and he cries out to God for restoration. It's interesting. I mean, you say that about Nathan. I mean, as Nathan approaches David, he, he doesn't necessarily, as from all we know, have reason to believe that David's going to receive this well. You look at other kings later in Israel's history, they also have two bad years, but the two bad years turn into a lifetime, yeah. you know? And so David's trajectory is not good at that point, and yet he does respond well to the rebuke from, I mean, the Lord ultimately, but from Nathan. Yeah, he does. And that you're right. That's the key. You do have kings that don't ever respond, and God just takes them out. And uh, David does respond. Now, unfortunately, um, yeah, there's consequences to our sin. And the beauty of, of repentance is that God does restore. And, and in many ways, he'll, he'll renew things in our life that we never thought could be renewed. But there's still, there is the penalty for our sin, depending on what sin that we did. And David's sin was big enough in God's eyes that he says that the sword of the Lord will never depart from the house of David. Literally, the sword will hang over David's head and bring about just bad stuff in his family. And it, it does. Um, but David does receive forgiveness through repentance. I mean, he he get you know, as you talk about the sword hanging over his, I mean, over his house, I also think of, you know, God also says, hey, down the road, you know, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. And so there's kind of these dual promises put on yeah. David on his house. Yes, we go back to the, the scarlet thread. Where's Jesus in the story? Uh, in, in another portion of Samuel, um, we get the Davidic covenant. And Talk about that for a second. Just kind well, of the Davidic covenant is, is, is basically, David, exactly what you said. David, through your line, you're an amazing king, probably the greatest king that Israel will ever know, but you're not the most amazing king ever. And the most amazing king ever is going to come through your bloodline, and his, and his name is going to be Jesus. He'll be the Messiah. And so that, that's the covenant. The covenant is through your line, there'll be an eternal king that will reign forever. Now, did David understand that it would, would be Jesus, that it would be the son of a carpenter out of Nazareth? No, I don't think so. Um, but once again, even going, going back to Ruth, going back to Rahab, what, you know, out of their line, so you've got Rahab, a Gentile prostitute. You've got Ruth, a Moabitess, another Gentile. And God is reaching the nations in Rahab and Ruth and out of their line, which that their line eventually connects with David's line, um, he's going to bring Messiah. I mean, is, does the term scarlet thread, does that come from Rahab herself when she hangs the scarlet rope out the window? I've never I noticed. I don't that. know. That's pretty good. Did, I don't know. Did you I just mean, get that right I mean, there? I just thought of that when you mentioned Rahab. So maybe that's. I, probably, I don't know who I, came up I've with the term scarlet thread. I just thought of it as the blood of Jesus yeah. from Genesis to Revelation. I don't know. Oh, that's good. Uh, you know, as you talk about the Davidic covenant, I mean, I, and I could be mixing up the because it's in Samuel and it's in Chronicles, but David says, you know, I'm going to build you a house, saying to the Lord, and the Lord essentially turns it and says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. You know, I'm going to build you not a physical house, but one that will last your your line. And so it's just this moment where I, David wants to do something good for the Lord and build a temple. And I, I think that's fine and well and good. And God says, no, you, 
And since you're dreaming way too small, what's, yeah. what's happening here is much bigger. Yeah. So. Well, um, Leah, we'll, we'll finish on that. I um, appreciate you teaching for us. And again, thankful for your you service bet. for Thank Light you. Bears and for the kingdom. So. Thank you for Light Bears. Yeah. Amazing ministry. We really appreciate all that you all do. It's, it's phenomenal. That's how we're going to bring revival to the land, so to speak. We're going to change hearts and minds. It'll be through discipleship. It'll be through the teaching and training of God's word into the hearts of, of young and old people, but in the case of your ministry, young people. We'll love it. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it.